Well, please turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 12. As we continue through this book together, if you still have trouble finding it, it's after Proverbs, which is after Psalms, which is fairly easy to find, I think. Song of Solomon or Ezekiel, and you're too far. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting in verse 12. It's God's word through the pen of Solomon. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For the wise as of the fool, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, All will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all this vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. And yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. One of the things that is essential, uh, if you were to live your life in a God-glorifying and satisfying way, One of the things you must do is embrace the vapor-like nature of life in this fallen world. Uh, This is why Solomon is making this claim over and over that everything is vanity and everything he considers, everything he examines, he's drawing this conclusion. He comes to the same point where he declares it to be vanity, like a vapor. Remember, he started out the book this way and he continues to do this very thing. And a major part of embracing this vapor-like nature of life is confronting, accepting, and being prepared for the reality of death. And ultimately, this ought to lead you to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, the salvation freely offered in his name, and then to live your life as a gift from God 
under his sovereign rule, understanding your place as a finite person living in the infinite God's creation, which has been marred and by sin and subjected to futility by God as a judgment for sin. And what Solomon is doing in these verses and in the ones that we've been examining over the last few weeks, well, last week we were in First Peter, but the previous weeks, as Solomon is recounting for us this quest, this odyssey, is he's revealing the folly of putting your hopes in the wrong places, in finding ultimate meaning and significance in the wrong places. And in our text today that we just read, he addresses the false hopes of wisdom and work or toil. He has addressed both of these things already, but now he circles back to these to consider these matters once again. And now he explicitly states how death sours the good that can be gained from both of these things, toil and wisdom. And so this is where you want to place your worth. This is where you want to find ultimate hopes or purpose and meaning in life, then God here in Ecclesiastes by the pen of Solomon would have you know and realize for certain that death is coming. And then what of your great intellect? What of your great toil and wealth and accomplishments? It's true many today obviously appear to be contented to make wisdom or their wealth ultimate aims in life. Some would claim a satisfaction in this, I'm sure. But Solomon would have such people think a little longer about this. Remember, he is after the big picture in Ecclesiastes. And death renders wisdom and toil unsatisfactory answers to life's big questions. So Solomon would have us look beyond just the immediate moment and consider things from a larger perspective. And what we see here is that to find the purpose of life, you must reckon with the reality of death. And Solomon is making us face this, making us consider this. And this is not a, a morbid pursuit to think about the reality of death. It's not a morbid topic. That's not why this is here for us. Nor is this a topic that we should enter into with uh, you know, flippancy or casualness. That's not what we're doing here. I know for, for many of you and many people you know, death has been a very, very real and painful thing to deal with. You've had to face it in your own family, in your own life. Many of you have been close to it, have had to stare it in the eyes yourselves, not sure if you would make it. This is not here because it's some morbid or sick pursuit, but because it's important for us to consider. Uh, this is, remember, uh, Ecclesiastes is part of the Bible's wisdom literature. God has this here for us to think about, to consider this is here to disabuse us of false and damning ideas 
of life and its purpose and meaning to, to push us off of those false foundations that we might ultimately find life and rest in him, in the right place. So in our text that we just read, there are two pursuits of meaning that are stopped dead in their tracks by death, wisdom, and toil. And so the first point of the outline is that the reality of death rules out wisdom as the ultimate purpose of life. The reality of death rules out wisdom as the ultimate purpose of life. So verse 12 begins, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. So Solomon is returning here to this consideration of wisdom, madness, and folly, these these things that he has already explored. He briefly mentioned these in chapter 1 and verse 17, uh, where, if you remember, uh, we noted that he is contrasting these two, these two ideas. Uh, he's contrasting on the one hand wisdom and on the other hand folly and madness. Now just a couple of comments on these words, wisdom, folly, madness, uh, just by way of reminder. First, wisdom here should be understood, I would suggest, as skillful living. It's, it's understanding how things generally work. It is using this skill. It is using knowledge, careful thinking to navigate through life. It's a general human wisdom. It's the sort of thing that uh, an unbeliever could possess in measure, like a shrewd and intelligent businessman or woman who makes smart, call it wise decisions throughout life. You might think of the generally moral citizen who does well for himself, herself, and no major scandals and so on. I think the verses uh, that follow, particularly verse 21, will make clear that this is the idea, this is the kind of wisdom that Solomon has in mind. Verse 21, there he links wisdom, knowledge, and skill all tightly together. So that's the kind of wisdom he's considering on the one hand. Second, madness is not referring to mental insanity, we noted last time around, but is a moral category. It is those who reject the type of wisdom that I've just described. They reject wisdom for the immorality of folly. If you were to jump ahead to chapter 7, verse 25, there Solomon refers to the foolishness that is madness. So these are really, these are two words, madness and folly, really expressing one concept, one idea. This perverse foolishness of rejecting wisdom, rejecting care, thoughtfulness, skill in living, knowledge, and rather just kind of living by an impulse Flying by the seat of your pants, making decisions, random ones, without much foresight, turn out to be foolish. So he's returning to contrasting these two different approaches that one might take in life. And the second part of verse 12 indicates that he, Solomon, was in a very good position to consider these, these contrasts. He says, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. 
So he has explained the great wisdom that he had that led to riches, great building projects, if you remember, verses 1 through 11. So Solomon has reached the very pinnacle of life. We examined that a few weeks ago. We read 1 Kings 10, which really confirms this. So future kings aren't going to be able to do anything drastically different or greater or much more than Solomon has accomplished. It's just going to be, if they can get anywhere close to Solomon, it's just really going to be more of the same. He's at the height of what you can accomplish in this world, the height of worldly wisdom and success. And so he's in a very good position to be able to examine these things, tell us what it's like from that vantage point. It's vexation. And yet he returns here once again to this contrast between the two. And here's what he sees. In verse 13, he says, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So his first observation is that it's really quite plain, it's quite obvious That seeking to be wise in one's life has advantage, is better than being a fool, has gain. I think very few people, if you are honest, would need convincing that trying to be careful and smart and wise in how you navigate life uh, is, is bad. Everyone would agree that's better than just... You know, living by impulse. Lots of people live by impulse. Many of them also know that's not, not wise. Solomon says here, the person who has wisdom has, is like the person who has eyes in his head. They're able to see, to navigate life well. Whereas to reject such wisdom, to walk in folly, is to walk in darkness, is what he's saying. Obviously, we, we turn on lights in the night for a reason. Or it's in the dark that we stumble, we kick things, we hurt ourselves, we break stuff. It's not good. Again, I don't need to belabor that. And so this is the obvious difference between one who has understanding and skill in life versus the one who just lives with no plan and makes really no effort to try to gain wisdom. They just stumble about. So it was would seem an obvious win for wisdom. I think we all might conclude this right away. Why why be wise over a fool? We would all come to some similar conclusion here. So in one sense, I think he's just stating what is obvious. But that makes what follows that much more painful. In the second half of verse 14, this celebration of wisdom is halted. He says, and yet... Yet, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. And if you're wondering what event he's referring to, he clarifies this at the end of verse 16. When he says, how the wise dies just like the fool. This is the event that happens to both. Death casts its shadow over the wise and the fool alike, thus making the advantages of wisdom, a life of wisdom, seemingly in the grand scheme of things, pointless. What does it matter in the end if everyone just dies? 
And this is what he cries out in verse 15. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. Solomon expresses something here that many people are perhaps too timid or or afraid or hesitant to to say. It's a very honest aggravation. And in the grand scheme of things, the wise and foolish people all die and are eventually long forgotten. Generations, remember, come and generations go, he has said. Also in chapter 1, verse 11, he said, There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. We don't remember people before us. They're not going to remember you later on. And this reality fails to satisfy one who is in search of a meaningful existence and purpose to the universe. Living wisely, carefully, as the ultimate aim and good of life fails to satisfy because death and time void it all out. Who's going to care a hundred years from now what you did? And so there's a despairing note here, verse 17. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. A life of great wisdom, as he is using the term here, and success cannot serve to secure anything lasting. It is a chasing after the wind. Again, coming from Solomon, who who got it all, supposedly telling us, in fact, he just grasped nothing but air. The reality of death rules out this wisdom, this skillful living as the ultimate purpose of life. If you hitch your purpose, your joy in life to this kind of wisdom and careful living, to what wisdom might build for you here on earth, you live out your days under the sun, whether you're seeking to build a a very successful career or a, a good reputation, whatever it might be, consider here the vaporous nature of what it is that you're building. Death rules out this kind of wisdom is the ultimate purpose of life. Secondly, the reality of death rules out toil as the ultimate purpose of life. With the unavoidable fact of death before Solomon, he now turns and considers work, considers toil. In verse 18, it says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. 
the significance and the satisfaction of a life spent building great works, acquiring many goods, is also dealt a huge blow here by the inescapable reality of death. Solomon literally built a, an empire and had kings and queens and governors from everywhere coming to see his empire, uh, see the things he had built, ask him questions to hear his answers. And he says he got to the point where he hated it. He despised the work he had to do because he's going to have to leave it behind to the man who comes after him. Not only that, but whether that man will prove to be wise or a fool he can't possibly know for sure. Indeed, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was his successor to the throne. And he was, in fact, a fool. His folly is very explicitly described in 1 Kings chapter 12. In fact, in the ESV, uh, the editors, when they put titles before the chapter, they call it Rehoboam's Folly. And indeed, that's what it describes. The vast majority of Solomon's empire, 10 of the 12 tribes, were ripped from his son's hands, in part because of Rehoboam's folly. And so in this, in what happened after Solomon died, his point that he wrote here, is confirmed. Maybe Solomon had a sense that Rehoboam was a fool. We, we don't know for sure. But regardless, this reality of working hard, sacrificing, toiling to build something great, being careful, thinking carefully through the decisions that are made, managing your affairs wisely, only to leave it all behind at death, possibly to then be frittered away by an absolute fool makes toil sufficient purpose of life. This is not a satisfactory answer if we're dealing honestly. This is what Solomon's getting at. He affirms this in verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. There's a tremendous futility to this. And then he goes on and continues with further reflection on toil. Verse 23, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? We've seen him ask this question a few times already. He's returning to it again. What's the point? What do we gain at the end of all of this? He says in verse 23, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Life is a life of labor it's spent in toil and hard work with sorrow and vexation throughout it as a result of the fall of course such that rest is elusive it says here even at night when it's time to just shut it all down and rest even at night his heart does not find rest 
you know that feeling. You go to bed, but you still have the things of the day on your mind. You're thinking through tomorrow. What are what, all the things you've got to accomplish? The things left undone. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is how we live life. And then even if we build something, we die and just leave it for someone who hasn't toiled for it, who doesn't understand what it took to acquire it, who might just throw it all away. It's vapor, it's vanity, it's grasping at wind. I hope that the emptiness of that of this grips you to some extent that you see this you feel something of the hopelessness and pointlessness of life as described here this is your purpose this is one of the reasons why it's so tragic when you hear of somebody who dies in the prime of their life a father of young kids with a family building a, a career for himself, doing well, and then all of a sudden, gone. It's tragic, certainly, as we think about that man's wife and children and friends, loved ones. But also, there's this part of us that just says, this all seems absurd, pointless, just gone forever. No more will that person be around. And that's it. This is it. There's just a terrible emptiness to that. If we're dealing honestly. Careful living. Wisdom. And toil with its acquisition of wealth cannot be the ultimate ends since death makes them null. Again, get to the end of your days. Die. In a hundred years, no one knows who you are. What will it have mattered? If you are really wise, a little bit wise, or a fool. So the significance and the purpose of life must grapple with death. And the scriptures teach us that death is indeed an enemy. It calls it the last enemy. There are those who deride people who might have a, a fear of death. As if it's weakness if you have a concern about death. It's not weird. It's not weird to be disturbed by death, to be haunted by it. Now, I don't think we need to stay there, but it's not a weird thing. In chapter 3, verse 11, we're told that God has put eternity into man's heart. There is a legitimate desire for more than just this vain life cut short by death that longing solomon says in chapter three is put there is placed there by god there ought to be 
dissatisfaction with the idea that we are just the result of random evolutionary process with really no ultimate significance. And then you just die. That should not be satisfying to anybody. And I don't think it truly is. And then if we try to then just make up some sort of significance to life, death is there just mocking our purpose that we land on, seemingly rendering our pursuits void in the grand scheme of things. And this can draw out this response Solomon states here of hating life. Now to this point in Ecclesiastes, Solomon has not given any good news. You may have noticed. He's poking holes in the philosophy of life that many people live by, in which he himself had sought out. Today, you know, we're so busy, we're so distracted. How many people stop and really consider these things that Solomon is forcing us to? Solomon is trying to re- is revealing to us the shakiness of the foundation that many people seek to stand on as they consider their life and its purpose. And this is necessary for us to consider to know that we might be sure we're not standing on the wrong foundation that we're not looking in the wrong place for a purpose and significance in life. Scripture has much to say about this topic of death. It makes it clear that our physical death is not, in fact, the end. Death is not simply something that makes life a vapor and empties it of ultimate significance. As we consider what the scriptures teach more broadly, we understand that death is the wages of sin, that death is a judgment. From God for our sins. And not only that, but at death, our eternity is sealed. Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Not only will the wise and fool both die, but both will give an account to God for what he or she has done in this life, which suddenly means that all of life is infused with significance. And this is a truth that Solomon will get to in Ecclesiastes. And the one who has achieved much, has lived carefully, has attained some wisdom, built a great empire, Being still a violator of God's perfect law will be condemned before God and judged when he dies. It is not enough simply to acknowledge a vague notion of the afterlife. That's not what scriptures teach, as if this is all here just to to help us think, oh, well, yeah, I guess there's got to be something beyond this. Uh, We'll call it heaven, and, and, and then we're good. 
The scriptures teach that death is the result of sin. It entered the world through Adam, and it extends to all men and women since then. And it is the very reason why such there's such futility and struggle in this life. It explains why work is toilsome and hard, and we stay up thinking about it and troubled by it. And sin is not just a force that's out there. It is something that you have participated in actively, sinning in thought and in deed against your holy creator. And yet God, in his love, sent his son to die in the place of sinners and rise again from the dead. And the promise of this good news that Jesus came and died and rose again is that all who would believe in him, place their faith in Jesus, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be forgiven their sin and granted eternal life. It is Jesus who can justify a sinner by his righteousness, being credited, imputed to your account by faith. This is the gift of God's grace to sinners. And again, to all who believe, you are granted eternal life. Death no longer becomes the final say. That longing for eternity is satisfied in Christ. Jesus told Martha in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And this seemingly endless, these seemingly endless cycles of life under the sun that we looked at in chapter one, at some point, these will, at the appointed time, come to an end. The Lord Jesus will return, and he will in time establish the eternal state, the new heavens and new earth, in which all his redeemed will dwell together with him and with the triune God for all of eternity. This is what we looked at last week when Kevin was preaching, the inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. Death itself, the last enemy at that time, will be swallowed up by the one who holds the keys to death and Hades. The Bible addresses death, explaining it, and bringing the only solution. It reveals the reason for death, Adam's sin, your sin, God's judgment for sin. It reveals the fact that it is an enemy. It is not simply just part of nature that, oh, well, you just try and pretend it's not a big deal, doesn't render everything pointless. It's an enemy. It's not part of the goodness of creation. And the Bible provides the solution to death. Forgiveness of sins and eternal life by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has satisfied God's judgment for all who trust in him. Taking their sins upon himself. So again, Ecclesiastes is pointing us to this solution, to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the hope for sinners, the one who delivers from death. So the proper response, obviously, is to make him your boast, to trust him, to not lean on your own goodness or your own works in any sense, but place all of your hope and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's again worth considering that believing in Christ doesn't make life's vapor-like quality disappear altogether. As we live under the sun, we still die. We are still forgotten. We still labor. We still toil. We still stress. And we still leave it behind to who knows. If we become too focused as believers on our earthly endeavors, this will aggravate your soul. But placing your hope in Christ, setting your eyes on the world to come, you can deal with life's vanities and perplexities. You can face the reality of death with clarity and with a little more courage. And as we'll see next week, a little ray of light shining into Ecclesiastes, we can also go on to receive and enjoy good things from the Lord as we enjoy them as gifts from him without trying to make them ultimate things. So to find the purpose of life, you must reckon with the reality of death. It will come. And it is the Lord Jesus who delivers from its eternal grip. As we think about right now, with so many people, I think, frankly, afraid of death, which is why everyone's willing to just seemingly lose their minds in these days in order to just not die. We might deride that or scoff even. It's not right, but if they are living on a foundation of sand, they ought to be afraid of death. This is a reminder again that the gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation in his name, is the answer, the thing that people need to hear now. It is Jesus who delivers from the slavery of the fear of death. The Westminster Shorter Catechism famously begins with the question, what is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is a wonderful answer.
much greater than man's chief end being careful living, building something on earth, toil, acquiring wealth. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And it certainly begins by believing in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And glorifying God is indeed forever. It extends beyond life under the sun and continues eternally. Let's pray.